Hi, I'm Vivian Wang, co-founder of The Wiser Podcast. Welcome to season three, where we continue to have discussions about women in surgery with Emory surgeons, in addition to interviewing surgeons beyond our local community. Under the direction of our Wiser director, Jessica Liu, an Emory General Surgery PGY4 resident, we are excited to share a season of episodes full of new topics, stories, and people. This episode was edited by Cameron Blunt and produced by Alex Speak. Welcome back to another episode of Wiser. I'm Jessica Liu, a PGY3 general surgery resident, and I'm here with Cameron Blunt, MS1 at Emory Medical School. Today, we are so glad to have Dr. Javonda Hodge. Dr. Hodge did her general surgery residency at Howard University and following her training, worked at University of South Alabama before coming to us here at Grady Memorial Hospital, where she's currently the Burns boss, serving as assistant medical director of the Grady Burn Unit and also as an associate professor of surgery at Emory University. Juvanda Hodge was born in New York City. Her parents relocated to the suburbs of New Jersey shortly after, where she was raised. She finished high school in New Jersey and came to Atlanta to attend Spelman College, a prestigious historically black college for women. After Spelman, she returned to Newark, New Jersey for medical school. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Hodge. Thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first got into medicine? I think when I was in high school, I did some like candy striper stuff. I was interested either in business or in medicine, just because locating not too far from Manhattan, like people you worked on Wall Street, or mm-hmm. that's kind of what I knew. When I was in undergrad, I did a couple of summer programs, and kind of getting like people want to go into medical school. It was like just summer at UVA, a summer at University of Connecticut, and then summer at Rutgers. Mm-hmm. And I always told my dad, like, if I don't get to med school, I could just teach, because my dad was a teacher in the Bronx. So I ended up getting into medical school. But my minor was in business management. Surgery was like totally kind of by accident, to be honest. I didn't really have any exposure to any surgeons. And I had a distant cousin who was primary care doctor, so it's all really had shadowed. So I did surgery first. And surgery at that time was three months. So my surgery was my first rotation because I wanted to get it over with. And mm-hmm. like really concentrate on like on medicine because I really need to do well on that. So after like the horror of taking step one, going to the first month of surgery, we started like July first. So I said, Well, you know, I I probably didn't pass step one, so I'm just make sure I do really well this month so I get credit for this month. And then you were back then you would get a call if you failed step one. So I didn't get a call. I'm like, crap, I'm gonna start studying because I guess I passed. <laughs> and um, my first month general surgery at this hospital called St. Michael's, and my second month was on trauma um, at the main hospital in Newark. And probably was there that I really found like fell in love with surgery, I would say. I wasn't really sure that I liked it. I mean the general surgery was kinda like craziness and running around, but I had a mentor She's a resident, and Alicia Moore, she's like, you should think about surgery. I was like, well, I don't know, you know, so I just want to do this to kind of get it out of the way, but I wasn't really sure. I was never at private surgery interest club, like some of the first, second years are. I didn't, I didn't go to any of those meetings just because I thought this was not for me, and ended up even still kind of doubting myself. When I talked to my advisor, my first rotation my senior year was at a hospital in Jersey City, where it just was me and the attending, we'd operate like all day. And my second rotation was in the emergency room, um, 
and after that, I was like, okay, I think I'm gonna definitely gonna do surgery. So I was kind of late to the game. We read a great article about you where you were featured as a Spelman alumni, um, where you talk about being the first surgeon to come from Spelman. Can you tell us more about that? I think just when you t- I talk about when it's one of my things we talk about like diversity. It's kind of like diversity of experience, and I had never met a surgeon that looked like me. I think until. I was in medical school and there there was no attendings, there were just residents. We had two or two surgical residents. Um, So I think there may be one person ahead of me, but I did volunteer actually at Grady when I was in Spelman, but not with surgery. Not being afraid to set your own path, I just never was afraid, like, okay, just go ahead and do it. I remember after like my first month at St. Michael's, there are other people in the rotation and I was like I worked my butt off because I thought I was gonna have to like drop out the rotation and so the attending like he gave me like a lower grade and I was like no I don't get C's so I like went to the surgeons I'm like camped out waited for the attending <laughs> it's like you know to change this this is not my work ethic which is kind of like craziness like I don't know what like I just got you know I got my grade I was like oh no I did more work than this you have to change my grade so Thing that I, even I had a student like waiting for me in the surgeon's line, I'd kind of be intimidated, but I just wasn't scared. Um, so I think always, I think going to a women's college, it kind of gave me the background to say that you can launch out on your own, you can do anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really make it, you can do anything. It's no, with no limitations, and you're expected to be successful. That's one of the things I love about you is you're fearless and you would go demand your grade get changed. <laughs> Just for the record, did they well, actually I mean, change your grade? He did. He wow. did. That's because amazing. I was like, I did all like I did a lot of the cases. I was there always there on time, you know, and I yeah. was like, I should get at least what everyone else got. Well, and one of the things we wanted to talk to you about too is, you know, if to be a woman surgeon in the community and to have that be seen as normal, you have to get out there. You have to be seen, have the positions, and it's the same for minority surgeons. You have to get out in the community, and it sounds like you set yourself up to be more of a pioneer and break out and go out and take these roles. So, what? How do you feel like the balance is between staying kind of in a safe place? Um, versus, you know, especially coming from places like Spelman and Howard where people are more likely to look like you and act like you and versus going out there and being that pioneer and facing that battle. What kind of adversity did you have to overcome with that? I think I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a majority white population, so I was already used to, like, I was already knew how to assimilate. I'll put it that way. Um, I think in Howard rotated at seven hospitals, not just Howard. We were at mm-hmm. DC General, we were at Children's National, we were at Providence. So we went to Fairfax. So that was a lot of places. So you were exposed to a lot of surgeons. We also interacted with Georgetown Residency, Drew W. So you didn't feel like so isolated. And you, since you rotated together on teams, you knew like I know just as much of them. Like so, it wasn't that wasn't the issue. As far as like saying I have to be a pioneer, like that's not what I said. Have to be just kind of find your way. It just happened to you. Didn't set out to be a pioneer. It just no, you just paved your, your way. Path. Right. That's what I kind of believe. Like whatever your path is, it just will just will kind of guide you. And along that path, who have your most influential me- mentors been? Did you have people that you looked up to that guided you? In college, probably was like Dr. Faulkner. She was like my. Um, honors calculus teacher (laughs) and she was a tough professor she would you know call out your grades by like a numerical order wow so 
That's anxiety-provoking. Yeah, anxiety-provoking. So I think that experience was humbling because I was just used to be at the top of my class and, like, here, like, everyone was smart. That kind of, that humbled me. And kind of when I finished, I was like, that doctor, I'm going to medical school. Like, I'm going to do it, you know? Because after that, I was like, I cannot take honors calculus too. <laughs> It's summer school. I'm the Gaddis class, and I was like, <laughs> yeah. math is not my thing. So I think she inspired me. She just was tough. I know that from talking to other pre-med students or med school students, it's that we're so focused on trying to find mentors, you know, for the next step, and then we get to the next step, and we think, well, we made it to med school, and we can do it by ourselves from here on out, and that's really, really false and ultimately not true, so. Even as an attending. <laughs> yeah, to the detriment of, you know. Well, I mean, you just, you just, I mean, if no one really, like, if no one really explains the rules of the game to you, you have to, like, figure out on your own, which mm -hmm. I did take a mm -hmm. while longer. Right. So I tried to, like, limit some of those years. Like, <laughs> 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 somehow you can make it mm -hmm. shorter, but I think not knowing, like, what it takes to get to the next level and stuff like that is knowing your family's ever done it before, like, I don't know. Like, right. trying to explain call to my parents, it was a very foreign concept. What do you mean you're not coming home? Like, I'm not coming home. After talking about how her mentors have shaped her path to becoming a burn surgeon, Dr. Hodge reminded us that mentorship doesn't stop after graduation from medical school. She re-emphasized that in order to achieve the goals you set for yourself, you need to continue to surround yourself with people who are doing the kinds of work that you are interested in. Dr. Hodge is a member of the American College of Surgeons, the National Medical Association, and the Society of Black Academic Surgeons. The National Medical Association is the largest and oldest organization representing African-American physicians in the United States. Many are familiar with the American Medical Association, or the AMA, which is the largest collective organization of physicians in the United States. However, not many know that at the founding of the American Medical Association in 1847, black doctors were excluded from joining and thus were barred from the benefits of membership. So, in 1895, black doctors established their own organization, the National Medical Association, or the NMA. It is at these smaller yearly conferences that Dr. Hodge felt most comfortable approaching her peers and built a community by asking questions, asking for guidance and advice. It was at these conferences that she learned how to climb the academic ladder. To become chair or department head or associate professor requires long applications, multiple letters of recommendation, and it's difficult to navigate when there are not many people in the positions of power who look like you or who have been there before you who can guide you along that path and potentially advocate on your behalf. Are there any people in your career so far when you were more of a junior faculty member that helped guide you? I think about junior like Dr. Luderman, he was like the guy who actually hired me. Mm -hmm. I was, after I finished at Howard, I worked for a year of private practice in DC area. And I did really miss like being around residents and students and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And looking at one of those surgery journals, they have like the wanted ad. So I was like, oh, the place is hiring down a mobile. And I actually interviewed there for residency. I said, well, let's just try. So I sent my CV and called them. And the guy like, are you serious? Like, yeah, you know, well, can you come down next Tuesday? So I was like, okay, I maxed out my credit card and um, wow. bought a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> And he was like, 
she's here. Like, she's actually here. <laughs> I was like, you tell me, come down. So, I think you helped me a lot. I mean, you're the one who got me into burns, to be honest, because I really was hired, like, general and trauma surgeon. Tell us more about how you got into burn surgery. Well, I mean, Dr. Littman was a burn, burn trauma surgeon. Mm -hmm. He was a chair of the department. So, he was director of the burn unit at that time. He had a new chair, and, you know, of course, you have attrition of some faculty at that point. And at training, I did more pediatric burns at Children's National and did just cover the burn ICU at night at a hospital center. So I'll do burn, like I'll cover the room, I'll do the cases, I'll take some call, but I still want my private practice stuff, and I still want to do general surgery, like, because I was over the resident clinic and stuff like that, and I'm like, I still want to do all that, I'm just going to have to fit this in. Eventually, as I get, like, learn it, and, you know, I was like, okay, I do like it, and kind of just kind of merged the thing and kind of did less private practice stuff or hospital practice and more just resident clinic and burns. So that's kind of how I got into it, but not, um, kind of voluntold to do it. It's not by choice. <laughs> and now here you are, here our yeah. assistant director of the not, burn unit. Not by, not by choice. Well, and burn surgery especially is very challenging. Um, it involves a lot of critical care medicine. It can be really emotionally challenging. It's a field where you have these emotionally loaded stories mm -hmm. that what your patients have gone through. You also have patients that you take care of for so long. For example, I'm on your service. I'm your service chief now. We have a patient that's been here over 700 days. How do you balance being involved in your patients and having the effort and empathy to care for them, but also avoid burnout and just getting completely overwhelmingly used up in dealing with patients, especially ones that you've developed such strong relationships with? I think if you don't have any emotional reaction, then, you, then you're kind of burnt out. You know, when you have a patient that you don't have a good outcome on there, you're just personally investing to. So if I don't feel anything, then I kind of know like some like something is off. Just keep your own humanity. That's my main thing. I try to be like normal when I leave here. I was a student in New York, and this guy just got shot, and the attending was who was majority was kind of like waiting around. There was like 50 people in the family waiting room when he looked at me like, "Will you come with me?" Tell the family this patient is, died, is dead, and he kind of like hemmed and hawed and said something about the patient expired. And I said, Well, he died. And like, then it, like, of course, the room erupted and all that. And I was like, I will never mm. tell a family like that. Like, that just right. stuck with me. Like, I will never do that. Like, that's just the wrong way to do it. So I think just showing the humanity of the situation. I think when I was in Mobile, I did a lot of work with the organ donation. That kind of shows you, like, even if the patient's not going to have a good outcome, just how you talk to patients makes such a difference. Even you're delivering bad news, like sit down, mm -hmm. talk to them, take off dirty clothes, tell them like what's going on rather than just kind of like blurt it out or act like you're just too bothered. So you always remember those patients. Mm -hmm. You still feel like crap, but they still have it. Didn't see to say like, I know you tried. Everything along the way I think teaches you how you're gonna be. Either, either you accept the experience or you don't. I try to accept it. Otherwise, you keep repeating the same mistakes and over again. To if my mom has been sick, kind of being on the other end, like you kind of have to be patient, wait for the doctor to come out, and you're just like eager for any information. They may like breeze by, like waiting five hours for this dude. Like, at least give me a minute. How do you deal with those negative emotions? What do you like to do to get away from all of it? I mean, I try to keep your some outside friends who are outside of medicine. I have a little Zumba friend. You have your Zumba class. Dr. Hodge, you have the best music in the OR. And so um, 
we have actually asked Dr. Hodge to curate a playlist for us that we're going to share with our listeners because she has some of the most fun music in the operating room. But we're going to ask, what are some of your favorite songs to listen to in the operating room? Um, I like things that are upbeat, mm-hmm. like things that kind of put me like in a good mood, that are happy. Sometimes it, just like a maybe like a pediatric case, maybe like more like a love songs, something too too hype, but things that kind of like get me pumped because it makes me takes your mind off what you're doing. Birds are can be kind of monotonous. We're doing the same operation pretty much every day mm-hmm. in one way or the other, so puts everybody kind of at ease, and then I'm able to kind of focus. Do you have a few favorite artists you'd always go to? I love Beyonce. Yes. Queen B. Queen Bay. So I like Beyonce. Just saying that has like a good beat. Like right. Hip hop. But I go, it's everything on my playlist. There's country, there's, you know, some rock and roll stuff, some 80s stuff, show me age, some new stuff, some things that I like that I kind of sing along to. So I do like Zoomer and hip hop classes. So songs I like in there, and then I'll put it on my I like that song. I love Shazam, but Shazam. This <laughs> is that. Okay. I have to play this stuff like that. So things are kind of a good beat, kind of has a good. Too sad. Right. <laughs> you personally attest to how fun the playlist yeah. is. One of the stats we had kind of compiled from your Spellman article is how 61.6% of physicians um, and surgeons are male and only 37.5% are female. And on top of that, only about 5.8% are black. So you're definitely a minority in a minority as a black female surgeon. What advice would you have for students or residents in that position? I think being inquisitive, mm-hmm. you know, like make sure you have good grades. I think that's the key to everything. If your grades are good, you can go right. anywhere. I think don't be shy to ask questions and believe that you can do it. Mm-hmm. That's look, the biggest hurdle. Don't look for validation from anyone. They're not going to clap for you because you showed up. It is what it is. I was talking to one of the residents the other day about that. It's just kind of like, it is, that's life. It is what it is. I mean, have you navigate this world not looking like everybody else? That's just life. You, mm-hmm. You've already know how to do it. Mm-hmm. That's, those things are still in surgery. It's just a microcosm of the thing. It's kind of like, um, but be confident in yourself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to just take a breath. And that's kind of one of the things. One of my other mentors that she was telling me, like, you know, you just haven't, like, what can you do to make yourself feel better? Like, as a resident, we were just, you know, we don't have a lot of money, so. She's like, well, just buy yourself a pair of socks. I have new socks on. Um, <laughs> whatever is gonna make you feel better, I just have this like Maybelline or Revlon lipstick that I put on like just bed at night. I just have a little lipstick on. I'm like, Why do I, I got lipstick on? That looks so cute. <laughs> it looked terrible. Whatever you need to kind of pick yourself up, mm-hmm. sometimes you're just going outside and getting some fresh air. I do that still like radio. Like I'll walk around the whole hospitals to get some fresh air and you get perspective like, the sky's, the sky's there, like God is somewhere in the clouds, just have some fresh air to kind of clear your mind. And I started doing that as a resident, but just get really stressed and just go out, just take a walk and come back inside and realize like, okay, I can handle this. Because I just get so focused on the little details and like, this is a big world out there, like this is one minute thing. So how can you decompress during the day? Take a break, take a breath, because obviously this is, you're overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. and get back into yourself. I think being mindful of what's going on around you, I think, helps. Okay. I have another question. So, 
At institutions like Spelman and Howard, it's more commonplace to interact with other black physicians and patients, and we know that black patients who are seen by black doctors have better outcomes. Unfortunately, HBCUs and lots of public hospitals that serve minority populations are forced to advocate for themselves when it comes to receiving funding, resources, as was the case for Grady in 2007 when it was almost shut down, and Howard just last year um, when it had to fight to have access to train at the same hospital that they, they built in D.C. What are the pros and cons in your mind of working at institutions like that? I think for me, like personally, that's where I, that's, that's where I want to be. Mm-hmm. I like being a doctor for the underserved. That's where I find the most um, value. I think training in underserved hospitals, I was able to see both sides of it. But I think for me, like that's what makes me happy. That's what makes me fulfilled. Mm-hmm. But I think the difference is, even in people think like, oh, it's a, that's a black hospital, but it's not monolithic. It's very right. different populations. You have the Caribbean population, you have African population, and you got like people just black. So it's different personalities and cultures intermixing <laughs> in that area. So it's not just one set of um, rules. So I think that's it definitely is different. That was a different thing to learn. Yeah, that's a great point, too, that you can't be in a place and assume that a lot of patients are going to have the same experiences, speak the same languages, come from the same background. So yeah, that's something that I think, yeah, students may forget when they, you know, go to a specific institution. They have maybe things that they've heard or an idea of what it would be like to work at Grady, and then they get here and it's, you know, people speaking 20 different languages exactly. from 80 different exactly. countries and exactly. you can't make an assumption yeah yeah so that's just kind of that's what I would say like it's definitely not it's not just black and white mm-hmm. <laughs> pun intended <laughs> nice Our thoughtful and lyrical conversation with Dr. Hodge ends with quite a fun fact are you a beach person? I grew up by the shore. Yeah. The shore. The shore. What do you think of the show Jersey Shore? That's people I grew up with. I mean, actually, the situation went to my high school. What? See, there you go. That's so, something yeah. we never <laughs> would have known. Fun fact. Yeah, I went to So, did you school. know him? No, he's younger than me. Um, but yeah, we're the same area. So, those kind of people I grew up around. So, I can relate a lot. Well, thank you so much for letting us interview Dr. Hodge. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast or send us an email at wiserpodcast at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. Thanks for your support and we hope to hear from you soon.